What is up, everybody? This is Nathan Brown, and you are listening to Tuesdays Are For Talking, a weekly podcast from Mosaic Church in Austin, Texas. This week on the podcast, we're going to have a conversation with Pastor Kevin York. Kevin is the Executive Director and CEO of Every Nation Churches and Ministries. And in this week's episode, we're going to talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting our churches all over the globe. Every Nation has a footprint in over 80 countries. We're going to talk about how this is affecting them, how it's affecting church planning initiatives, campus ministry and of course we're going to spend some time chewing on what it means to be both a gathered and scattered church i know you're going to want to hear every minute of this so let's get into it right now here we go well here we are on tuesdays are for talking with kevin york man i'm excited to have you on the show today kevin thank you so much for being here it's a great honor to be here good to see you love you love your church your leaders and had the privilege of meeting them and spending time with them over the years and so it's a great honor to to be here. We're going to have a good time. Well, Kevin, if you would, just just go ahead and let our audience know a little bit more about yourself. Obviously, I've told them about the role that you play a little bit at Every Nation, but you can give us a little more information on that, and it'd be really helpful for people to know who they're listening to today. Well, my role primarily exists of two main things. I'm I'm like the CEO of the organization, so my my first role is the organization itself being responsible for the, I think it's 420 employees that we have here, uh, a lot of missionaries, and then a lot of technical staff and the finances for both uh, national and global. And so that's my first role. Um, but my primary job is to really just to serve Pastor Steve, our president, as he engages the world, as he engages our Apostolic Council as he engages our global leadership teams from all over the world and all over the regions, and just to serve in any way that may be. So from training to encouraging to to helping them with issues nationally around the world, local churches that are primary centers around the world. So that's my day job. Well, that sounds like quite an interesting day job, <laughs> and we uh, we certainly appreciate that you do it. We want to get back into that in just a little bit and talk some more about the movement and about our, our churches and our missionaries and our campus efforts and all of that and how it's being impacted by COVID, which of course is a global pandemic. It's not just something affecting the states, it's affecting everybody. But before we do that, if it's all right, we'd love to just get to know you on a little deeper level. And one of the things that I love to hear from people is their testimony. So Kevin, man, tell us, how did you find find Jesus? How did Jesus find you? How did all that happen in your life? Well, briefly, um, I was not raised in a Christian home. My parents weren't raised believers. And so we grew up as I kind of metaphorically, or maybe even um, kind of the backdrop of my life was that we were raised pretty pagan, just no church background at all. We had a stint where I did personally engage a church when I was a young kid because we lived way out in the country and all the kids around me went to this little bitty rural church, but pretty much without any spiritual anything. Later on in life, I came to Christ probably more of a process than an event. When I was in my early 20s, for some reason, the only way I could describe it is I began to have a curiosity about Jesus. I was really driven to find out about him, about that dude that I had heard of, uh, for that brief moment when I was a when I was a kid, and so obviously the Holy Spirit was really uh, drawing me to Him, and I set out to do that. Um, in the process, uh, I I ended up in a Baptist church, and I think there was a moment where I became converted there. 
And that's when I really committed my life to Jesus. Um, for some reason, I actually knew that it was an all-out sellout to him. And so I committed my life to him, but never was really discipled. Um, later on, I ended up in a small church plant, and um, a man named Russ Austin, who's a pastor in every nation, took me in and began to disciple me. And um, that's kind of how I came to Jesus. Man, everyone has their own story. One of the things that uh, you know certainly was true in my life that has come out in a lot of these podcast interviews with people is that there's sort of a moment where they believe and then there's a moment where they follow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. uh you know people ask me when I when I became a Christian, you know, uh I won't go on and on because I've discussed this on the podcast already, but I couldn't tell you because there's never been a time in my life of remembrance when I didn't believe, you know, to yeah. to to use the old phrase, I never had enough faith to be an atheist. Yeah. But I can tell you when I decided to follow Jesus. That was yeah. that was a whole different deal. And it sounds like like you had that moment as well. So so you met Russ Austin, and what city were you guys in together? Was that in Midland? Yes, it was in Midland, Texas. In fact, I uh, when I committed my life to Christ, I realized, uh, you know, when I'd pick up the Bible and I would read it, it truly was a mirror to my soul, and I saw how broken I was and how mm. how how um, how much I needed to change. And and I had a business and really it was the Lord of my life. And so I, I sold it and moved to Midland, Texas, actually to go to work for an oil company so that I only had to work 40 hours a week, believe only. it or not. <laughs> yeah, they they forced me to go home. And it was, and that was actually on purpose. I, I got a job like that on purpose. It provided a little bit for my family, but the primary purpose was to really work on me and my marriage and my walk with Jesus. And when I ended up in Midland, Russ Austin had just planted his church uh, two years later. He moved there. And so I showed up when there were 30 people. And so that's how we got there. That's how we connected. I heard him on a radio program and I showed up and the rest is kind of history. He's still my best friend today and I'm 64 and I was in my 20s then. So Wow. Well, that's two two good dudes right there for sure. So so you ended up connecting to that. Russ helped to disciple you a bit. But then at some point you became the pastor of that church. So how did you go from forty hours only in the in the oil industry to actually taking over that church, presumably when Russ left? Well, there was a moment in time that the Lord spoke to Russ and Debbie about asking me to join their staff. Um and do the business side, run all the, you know, administrative side of the church. And through a series of events, they hired me. I, I left Texaco. I went on staff of the church there and um, for seven years served with Pastor Russ. He, he spent two and a half years of my last few years there trying to talk me in to go plant a church. This was before every nation existed. And I didn't want to plant a church even when I went to plant a church. I went kicking and screaming. And uh, because I was having quite the time of my life, I, I never saw myself as that. And so we went and planted a church in Abilene. And our church actually grew very quickly. And one day Russ called me and said that he was considering moving to Jacksonville, Florida, but I would have to come back and take the church or it was a no, it was all deals off. It's all on and you. So, <laughs> yeah, it was all on me. And so uh, 
we really sought God. It was a very difficult decision for us, but we moved back to Midland, and that's how I became the pastor, the senior pastor then for the next seven years. So, Tell me a little bit about what you saw in your seven years there. What kind of growth and challenges did you guys experience? Uh, it's, I'm sure it's hard to boil down seven years into just a soundbite, but, uh, but lo- I'd love to hear yeah. a professional like you give it a shot. <laughs> Well, it was, you know, all of you probably in Austin understand Midland's economy is simply oil. I mean, it's just an oil-based economy. And so the entire seven years I was there, uh, we were the fastest declining metro area in America because of three or four busts in a row. And so um, the the miracle was with the declining population, we actually grew. one of the things I've always been able to do is reach lost people. One of the weaknesses I always had was I would get them there and not disciple them. And so, um, you know, I had like every senior pastor weaknesses and we had worked very hard to create a discipleship culture. Um, some of the best, my best friends still to this day are there in that church, but it was a wild ride during those days of just watching people lose their job and, and their careers and some degrees became obsolete. And it was really a difficult time, but it really opened up people's hearts to the gospel. And so a lot of people were converted. A lot of people became disciples of Christ. Um, we actually built a building and the economic downturn because our facility was uh, almost dangerously too small. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't fit the people. And I, I learned so many lessons about leading um, uh, so many so many lessons about leading an eldership and leading in a church and um, just leading my own family during times of crisis. Probably the greatest lesson I learned is is to be thankful at all times, which lends a lot to the situation that we're in now, is to have an eschatological view of what's happening on this planet currently and the pain and the suffering that happens from that. And, you know, many of the old scholars believed that forgetfulness and ingratitude was a moral issue, not just a mental issue. And Paul kind of points that out in Romans 1 when he says that they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God, nor did they give thanks. And um, I learned very early on in ministry that thankfulness and gratitude every day when you wake up, it's your job to bless the Lord. It's your job to realize that this day he made, regardless of the crisis and the chaos and the pain that lament and praise can exist simultaneously. And the joy of the Lord is very compatible with suffering and pain. And you can touch the peace of God. And it was in those tumultuous seven years of many, many goodbyes as people were leaving the city, but it was it was far more emotional than just they got a different job. Many of them, their entire fortunes were wiped out and their futures and their, they were just in the middle of trying to reinvent their whole life. Mm. And so, so yeah, it was those seven years, but they, they made, they made us closer as a church. They built us as a team. We grew, our souls were better. So yeah, it was a great time. 
So that sort of leads us, and I'm sure there's many more stops on the way, but it sort of leads us back to, to where you are today. And obviously, every nation, <laughs> by, by the name, is a giveaway. This is not just an American outfit. You know, we're not just here in America. We're not just in North America. It is a, it is a global movement. And how many countries do we have a footprint in now? I know it's in the 80s, but you probably know the exact number. We're in 82, but the great thing about how we're organized is we we don't we we try to create a ubiquitous movement where the centers are churches and they plant churches. And so I the moment I say 82, there's already someone in the airplane stepping out on a new nation somewhere, and so we're always behind. We hope to take a snapshot every year of where we are now, but it is always obsolete within two months of us saying that. But we're in about 82, 83 countries in the world. And um, so, yeah, we're we're in that. What a great problem to have, to not be able it to is. quite keep up with how many countries uh, Jesus is being preached in uh, yes. through some of our people. That's that's incredible. So, Kevin, let's, let's get down to uh, talking a little bit about how this global pandemic is affecting a few different aspects of what the, the, the Christians in our movement are doing. And if it's all right, I'd love to just work out and in. And so, so first, I would just love to hear how this is affecting some of our, our churches and church planting efforts in less developed areas, you know, where, where I mean, we, we're in a tough spot here in the United States for sure, but we're by no means in the toughest spot. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious how things are going in other parts of the world. Certainly, we'd love to have that information and know how to pray for our brothers and sisters that are laboring for the gospel in even more challenging places than this. What information do you have about how this has been affecting all of those efforts? Well, I just got off the phone yesterday with our with leaders from South Africa, with leaders in Nigeria, uh, with leaders in Oceania, the continent of Oceania. And so every day I'm on the phone with leaders from some other part. Oh, and, and from Asia, from Japan. And so how it's rolled out in the world is it, it really varies. Um, Many nations were already in deep fiscal crisis. Many, many populations, there were food shortages and food insecurity. And um, those nations, it has just really been tough. In some of those countries, and because I don't have permission to say privately what I've been told, I'll just do in general. But in some of those countries, they were already in very bad economic positions, whether it's through corruption most of them, it's through corruption or uh, in in government, and those nations have been bit, hit very hard. We've, uh, but the way that Christians, uh, our our churches are responding the way churches and Christians have responded for two thousand years. The Holy Spirit and Jesus is the head of the church, and when crisis hit, the church always orients into the fire, not away from the fire. And so in those countries where there is very little resource, they are scraping up everything they can scrape up and feeding people up to 400, 500 meals a day, some of the individual churches. Wow. Um, and, uh, and I was talking to one of our leaders yesterday, and there's a gigantic churches in this country, and they said that the government won't let them feed because the possibility of spreading COVID. And so they're having to overcome all kinds of obstacles to get food to people. And 
Uh, the veracity that believers have all over the world is is staggering to me. Um, as a as a movement, we're sending money to those places. Many of our churches are sending money. One of our pastors found out about one of our churches that was feeding upwards of five six hundred people every day. Uh, and that was those people's only meal that day. And they sent money. Another church heard about another church and they sent money. And so, um, so primarily, uh, there's, that's the first bucket of churches where the, the nations were already fragile, uh, poverty's xenophobia, xenophobic camps with, with, um, severe poverty, uh, and then COVID hitting at the same time, it's, it's really, really devastating. Um, other countries in the first world or the uh, more wealthy nations, it's been a different story. Uh, food is not an issue. And um, the primary thing is the psychological um, difficulties of being on lockdown, um, all of the psychological issues there. And, and so churches have oriented to that, not just with their own people, but into the society and into the culture and helping them with trying to help them with counseling, with maybe a sense of communities. A lot of the small groups uh, and discipleship groups in those churches in those kinds of nations are pulling in lost people online. It's all online. You know, there's not a lot of physical contact. But a lot of people are coming to Christ and being discipled online and joining in those small group discussions. And, and it's been very rich to hear. Well, that is all very important work. And, you know, when you said a few minutes ago, uh, in a sense, the church is doing what the church has always done. Uh, I can't think of a better answer than that uh, in terms of what we're, we're hoping to be, the hands and the feet of Jesus, of course, in all of these places. It's both heartbreaking and heartwarming, honestly. And I'm sure you feel the same mm -hmm. way, you know, to hear these stories at the same time. So as we kind of move from that, and obviously another thing that our movement tries to do a lot of is church planting. And uh, of course, you know, Shad Bell, Shadrick Bell has, uh, you yes. know, decided to plant a church right in the middle of a pandemic. God bless him. And we had him on yeah. the podcast just a few weeks ago, and we talked about how all that was going for him personally. But for, from your perspective, how has this impacted our church planting efforts globally? Well, again, that's that's a uh, varies over you know, over the continents. In some areas, you know, here in the U.S., Wi-Fi is cheap. The internet buying time and and uh, that is cheap. In some countries, though, it is not cheap and the poverty is extreme. And so they can't just pivot to online platforms because there's no, they don't have the capacity to do that. So in those countries, it's far more difficult, church planting because the ubiquity of online capacity is just not there. Uh, I was speaking with one, one group yesterday, and they're in a highly technical country, and this is a, a critical church plant in a restricted nation, and we have a team that was at our School of World Missions, and they have been on lockdown for seven months. So the team has been in a different country for seven months waiting to come home, Wow. to uh, launch this church plant. And so there are some complexities to it, but the, but the amazing thing is it, it's, again, you can't stop 
the church from expansion. And, um, and so everywhere I turn, there's still a very serious view of expanding the kingdom of God through church planting and campus ministry. Campus ministry maybe is even more complex. Yeah, that was going to be my next question for you. Talk about that. I mean, students in some universities are on campus, some universities that are not on campus. Um, and, And so around the world, again, it's a mixed bag. You typically think of young people uh, very technologically engaged, but when you're burning up all of your um, all of your gigabytes of time you've purchased, and you have no more money to purchase anymore, it you you just can't uh, do long conversations on video over the phone. It just burns too much um, too much of your time. So uh, the church is uh, using the modern word pivoting all over the world and finding ways to connect with people that don't know Jesus, bring the gospel to them, bring help to them in the middle of all that and connect them. And that's true on the college campuses also. Um, and so again, it's, it's what I think I was thinking about when, when I, every time I hang up the phone from one of these conversations, I'm just so grateful to hear the stories of just what the Holy Spirit is doing through believers all over the world. Yeah, the campus ministry thing is really challenging because, like you said, some are going back, some are not. Uh, and then when you go back, what kind of gatherings can you have? How do you how do you meet new people when everyone's afraid to even you know get <laughs> with, within any sort of talking proximity to other people? It's been a real challenge uh, for sure, and it's going to be as the fall semester kicks off. So I know all of our campus missionaries would covet our, our prayers um, because they they are going to have to have some divinely inspired ideas about how to reach people in a whole new way. It's quite a quite an interesting context that they're walking into. So obviously one of the big conversations, I'm sure this is taking place around the world and my purview is right here in the United States, but there's there's daily conversations, there is political debates, there is social media outrage and different opinions about should we be open, should we not be open? And you know, I read an article just the other day from Ed Young, uh, Pastor Fellowship, a church up there in Dallas, sort of making his case for why he thought that uh, at this point, churches being closed is is doing more damage uh, to culture and society than being open and running the risk of people catching COVID. And, and it was a compelling, you know, it was a compelling piece that I, that I read from him. Uh, of course, our church here is still meeting virtually only, online only, but it's something that we wrestle with. I mean, all of our leaders and staff, I promise, or you are thinking about this twenty five times a day. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a drink, you think about it. You you walk out of the room, you think about it. Use the restroom, you think about it. You get something to eat, you think about it. You know, just that sort of constant dialogue in the back of your head. Um, I guess the first part, more so than your opinion, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of that, but do you have any awareness of how many of our churches are actually meeting in person and how many are not at this stage in the game here, at least in the United States? Nathan, I don't know exactly how what the percentage would be um, because um, there's all different kinds of contexts, but I do know that nationally, 70 plus percentage of the churches in America are are open at, at some level. I know here in Nashville, this Sunday morning will be the first time that we have opened the building. And of course, there's extreme social distancing and um, 
cleanliness and masking and all of that will be taking place as uh, along with um, the online presence also being there. We also have bought, uh, we also are on the Fox channel here in town, so you can watch it on television. And so we're doing that here in Nashville, but our church in, in Murfreesboro, uh, they were having church outside for quite some time. So you pulled up in your car and you set out in your car. And so there's all kinds of ways that churches are meeting. Um, a lot of that is determined by facility. A lot of determined by scale. A lot of that is determined by probably the state governor's and mayor's preferences and what place you have in in the lockdown. And some of our churches are talking about not being able to or not opening until after the first of the year. Some of our churches can't open because they were in rented facilities and those rented facilities are schools and stuff and they won't let them rent. So it's all over the map here in the U.S. And it's why I think the most important thing is that the local elders just cry out for wisdom because I think this is not a right and wrong issue as much as it is a wisdom issue. It's just a very difficult decision. It requires an extremely just uh, really a walking in faith and wisdom. Uh, I think if you're not meeting, you should have faith in not meeting. And I mean, faith in God. Uh, so I, I think it shouldn't be because we're just fearful. I think it should be that in faith, we believe this is the wisest thing to do is not to meet or to combine or to meet outside or some other version. And so um, I don't know how many are, but but I think I could definitely say this, that every eldership, every senior leadership team in every church in America is working uh, to try to do it as soon as they think it is wise to do it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, you know, what what is tough is when it's presented as a right or wrong option and instead of a wisdom question. And as yeah. we know, many many of the most important questions in life are yeah. are actually wisdom questions and and not right. so much right or wrong. The the right and wrong ones seem a little easier. But you know, one of the things that's hard to to look at is it's undeniable the effect. And and we see this in our own church community and of course have have many friends in ministry as, as you do, uh, we, we see that as, as people have been forced apart, whether it's caused pains and challenges that were already there to come to the surface and just be seen, or whether it's created new pains and challenges, I'm guessing it's a little bit of both. It has been a trying time on church communities to, to be able to hold together. And then you kind of throw in the circumstance that most of our churches are as multi-ethnic churches, multi-generational churches, people from a lot of different uh, places and spaces in life. Uh, the church was their focal point of connection. It was how they came together. It was how they crossed bridges that they made maybe didn't just normally cross in their life and, and interacting and exchanging with, with people from different walks and different backgrounds and different cultures and all of that. And so you sort of, you sort of take that away, even if people are consuming, you know, the service online, it becomes a little more event focused and community focused. You, you know, you get the zoom community groups and those are certainly better than nothing. Uh, but it's not the same as, as breaking bread together in a home and, and having a meal together. And so you see the, the tension of all that start to, to rise up and start to you know either create or exploit relational cracks and we just see that all over the place um, and so w with your 
former answer, you know, being what it is, that it's a wisdom question in each particular area. And I couldn't agree more, but I'm just curious from your perspective, what do you think the solution is right now to the devastation that we're seeing relationally as a result of not being able to come together? I mean, how, how, how do we combat that? How are you coaching up other pastors and leaders to combat that sort of thing uh, that, that seems, seems to just be plaguing so many communities and churches in our country right now and around the world? Yeah, that's a very difficult question because it, um, again, it's it's complex. I, I first, when I think of the gathering, I think of the ancient, the two ancient rhythms of the church, the gathered church and the scattered church. And in, in the Old Testament, it was very obvious that physical gathering was absolutely critical. And so throughout all of church history, the gathered church singing to one another instead of being sung to people online with psalms and hymns on spirit songs has there's a physicality to that there is a there's a deep spiritual uh, th- those are deep moments i know with me that was moments that made me undone when i first started coming to church um, i had never experienced anything like that before except when i'd go to the rolling stones concert or you know a concert there was there was a sense of something there but it certainly wasn't the spirit of god and it wasn't the people of god singing to one another and so i'm undone in worship i still am today it has been very difficult for me to watch instead of to have a physical moment for me. And we have a very diverse church. We have 60 nations, 70 nations at Bethel. And so when I look around at the thousands of people that are engaged in worship, it, 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 from, from those who, who have Latin backgrounds or African backgrounds or European backgrounds, and to watch the diversity of the way music is engaged physically, that moment is very critical. The moments of the instruction of the word, just being able to sit there and listen to the word being taught. And so I'm a good Christian and I'm clicking on and I'm technological. I I had Zoom a long, 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 long time ago when it was brand new because I, my job is global. And so WhatsApp, Zoom, and other platforms I've been using for years. So this is not new to me, and I'm not just an old, non-technical guy. But there is something radically different emotionally. And I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, I, I don't know why, but there is something missing that is not there from the physicality. And so I think it remains to be seen as to whether uh, viewing can replace seeing, whether being sung to has the same effect as singing to one another. Um, and, And so I think all of that goes into the bucket of the elders that sit around and try to walk through this, is your, first of all, your theological, biblical, historical view of the purpose of the gathering. And the profound change that happens. I know in the U.S. we slam the gathering because it's the easy thing to slam. So every time there's a crisis in the church, it's because we got to get out of the building. So the question now is we're out of the building, so should we stay out? And that's the, you know, that's the common thing. I mean, it's been for decades. It's not, this is not the first time because it's the easiest thing to say. The scattered church is what happens in the gathering determines how you scatter. 
And that's why uh, nations that hate Christianity, um, they don't care if you're scattered and you believe what you believe. What they do not want is the public assembly of worship. They will arrest you, throw you in prison, and in some places kill you if you do that. They will hunt you down. Exactly. The enemies of the church understand the most profound moment in the church is the gathering. Now, if you gather bad, you'll scatter bad. There's nothing you can do about that. But if you gather, and that gathering is profoundly impacting, and if you send people out, and that's the difference, versus let them leave, no, you send them into the world for those six days. I heard a thing once that God created the Sabbath so that he could get some work done. He created the other six days so that we could get some work done. (laughs) And so... That's like the that. that's the tension of the gathered church and the scattered church. And so this is really a deeply theological, philosophical conversation um, because there are far more factors that will cause us to not gather than just global pandemics. We've had pandemics all through church history. And, and at some points in time, wisdom said we're not going to meet through our history. But at other points in our history said, we must meet. And uh, and because in faith, they felt like they needed to meet. Well, in some countries, uh, they're hunting our pastors like dogs. And so they've had to move to online platforms temporarily because of that. And they've scattered, but they're regathering. And so uh, I didn't mean to go so long on it, but this is a very rich, very critical conversation because it's far more than just deciding physically when it's safe, because I think we do need to think that, but there's a lot more in the bucket about, about the purpose of the gathering and the, and the, the thing that happens there that is part understandable and very much a part mystery. I'm sure you've seen this uh, yourself, but many, many churches that I've been to, uh, for a variety of reasons, when I when I leave, they have a sign that says you're now entering the mission field, you know, and yeah. and I always sort of chuckle when I saw that because I both agreed and disagreed with the statement, you know, the, exactly. The exactly building be the mission field too, you know. Um, yeah, we uh, we we consider our greeters to be missionaries, you know. It's our, it's yes, our on campus absolutely. Uh, but there is a truth that we we come together, you know, to be centered, to be focused, to be re-energized, and then to go out and do, as you said. So there's mm-hmm. there's a truth to that statement as well that you're you're now leaving uh, this place and you're entering into the mission field, um, and and it is it's interesting to consider everything that you've just said and how that affects the way we re-enter the mission field, like. Now everything is sort of the same. Whatever we're going to do, if it's work, if it's talking with friends, if it's going to church, it's all just sit and look at a screen and hear from other people who are looking at their screen, as you and I are right now. And so it changes the dynamic where you, you don't have that sort of special moment that that is different. Kevin, I sort of cut my teeth in ministry as a worship leader, and I still love doing that uh, from time to time. But man, there's moments I've had with God privately that are more powerful mm-hmm sure Mm -hmm. than any moment I've had gathered. But there is powerful moments in the gathering that could never be, you know, I I won't say could never, but so far have never (laughs) been replaced or, or, or even risen to the level of watching on screen, even though in my own home, you know, we try to not just sit on the couch, you know, I I get my kids up and 
uh, I, I'm, I'm nursing an ankle injury, so I'm sitting right now. But prior to that, we all just stand up and we sing. And then I talk to my kids about worship and what it means to give God time and, and to give your body back, you know, in a sense, to actually be physically engaged in what you're doing. And so, you know, in that sense, we are participating, we're singing back, but we're singing back to a screen. If we can get everybody here at one time, that's six people in my home, although one's already right. moved out. So he's, he's rarely here. It's just not the same thing. And so, so I do just sort of wonder about the, the long-term impact. We know that the church of Jesus will continue to grow because it's a divine, it's a divinely instituted mandate. It's going to happen. The gates of hell will not prevail uh, against the offense that the church is on. Uh, but, but in this time, it is tough. I saw this quote uh, from Spurgeon, and I think one of the things you talked about is interesting, and perhaps this is a place where folks like you and I can hopefully minister to people. There's wisdom in wanting to protect others and to not put other people in a situation that may bring them harm. But there is a fine line between that and between walking in fear. And uh, someone sent me this, this quote from Charles Spurgeon that said, fear to die. Thank God I do not. The cholera may come again next summer. Pray it may not. But if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. Yeah. I couldn't help but be ministered to and challenged by that. What's your reaction to the late, great Charles Spurgeon? Well, he was an amazing man, and and he he was keenly aware that hospitals and hospices were a Christian idea. Um. Christians have always ran to, you know, back in the first century and second century and third century, uh, it was very, pagans had a different view of the physical body. And so families would flee when, when one of their family members got some kind of a plague, they would leave them alone. They would, they would abandon them. And, you know, our theology has a rich understanding of the physical body and an honor for the physical body because we're made in the image of God. And so that rich, deep theological view of the spiritual and the physical has driven the church to be the ones that would come in and bury the dead because of the fact that the body matters and and the, the hospitals, all of those and, and hospices taking care of them when the families would flee, the Christians would come back in. And that was a testimony to the world. And the Christians would go gather in their church buildings and pray for the sick and bring them in and, and, and tend to them. And they would or, organize their money towards them, even though they didn't have any. And so there was not a paralyzing fear to, to those kinds of things. And thank God for modern medicine. Thank God we understand viruses. Thank God we can, we have the medical profession and we have hospitals. It's the reason where Baptist hospitals and Methodist hospitals and Catholic hospitals and all these hospitals that are, that are funded and, and, and were organized because that idea, the whole of that idea came from the Christian community. And so that's what makes these decisions even more complex. Um, is that the impulse of the Holy Spirit is not to run. The impulse of the Holy Spirit is to engage. And our job is to figure out what that means. Hmm. And, and it is God himself that designed the ancient rhythms of the church, the gathering and the scattering. And it's that rhythm that creates a thickness to our theology. And the, 
every culture is a very thick culture with beliefs, with philosophy, with all of that. And, and they can't, when Christianity becomes thin, just try scattering and staying scattered and see see how impotent that is. Our, our history, just cursory courses in church history will tell you. In fact, even the monks fled to be alone in the uh, deserts and ironically found out that the best way to have a private relationship with Jesus is in community. <laughs> Think of that. <laughs> they, they fled to the deserts. And when they got there, they realized they needed community. So they built monasteries where they could be in community and in solitude because you cannot be godly without a gathering. And so they created gatherings and they gathered and they scattered. And so, um, so yeah, Nathan, I think, I think Spurgeon was very much onto something. And um, that's why the church needs courage. Uh, we we are very scientific. They weren't scientifically minded in the Bible, but we're very scientifically minded now. We understand a lot more about what's happening and what could happen. And we need, need to meet that with faith and courage and not foolishness. That's why it's critical for elderships to get together and hear the word of God, but all of it in faith. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I, I know this is a it's a it's a it's a tedious and also um, a difficult space and place because there's so many different opinions uh, about what we should be doing. But there's no doubt that that we have to continue to be the church, and and to be the church does have some defining characteristics. The church is yes. not ambiguous; it can't just be whatever it wants to be. Um, there are many different wineskins, you know. There's many different methods and ways, but there are some there are some core functions of the Church of Jesus that that have to be present or it ceases to be the church of Jesus. And, and I think right now we're trying to figure out how do we continue doing some of those core things, even if it puts people at risk to come together. One of the things we've talked about here at our church, um, and I've had this conversation with a number of pastors who have reopened, and what I've heard from them is, you know, from from some, not from all, but from some, man, we reopened, but it's not the same. You know, we're, you know, the older folks in our congregation are coming. The people with children aren't coming because we, we don't have enough people to staff the childcare areas and the children's church and to do all of that. So it's not a meaningful experience for the kids. So families with children don't come. And so, you know, what they're ending up with is younger folks, single folks, and then people who are maybe like on the young side of having all their kids grown. You know, <laughs> they got some kids out of the house, but they don't feel elderly. But what I'm hearing from these pastors is, well, it's safe, but it's not particularly meaningful because it's really not our church. It's a it's a fragment of our church. It's a piece of our church. And that's something that, that we've wrestled through as well is thinking about um, not only what it looks like to open safely, but what it looks like to open in a meaningful way. Um, ha- have you heard or, 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 or from other pastors who have experienced that challenge? And, and do you have any insights on what they're doing to mitigate that effect? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I have talked to many about this very thing. And um, the question is, what kind of church will come back? And um, I think the jury is still out on what happened behind the scenes during this time of COVID. Um, I know that some of the, you know, some of the statistics, supposedly 50% of all church members have now stopped online watching. Um especially primarily in the young category. Wow. Older people are still hanging in there, uh, but the younger people have either quit clicking 
Um, and there, so 50% of them have stopped watching their local church online. Mm. Then there's another statistic that was connected with that research that said um, another 15% are watching theirs for a few minutes and then clicking to somebody else's for a few minutes and clicking to somebody else's for a few minutes. And so the question will be when we come back, what will come back? You know, what will that look like? I was speaking to another person in, in another nation in the world, and they said people are saying, you know, it costs so much to get to church. We probably won't come back. And so, um, so yeah, I think, I think uh, every time trouble happens, the parable of the sower comes to my mind, um, that God is very faithful to show us where we really are in him. And uh, I think some of that is this. I think some of the things, though, are just uh, fear. And I'm 64. Uh, I have a morbidity. Um, that's almost morbid to say that you have a morbidity, but I have a morbidity. And so I would be considered one of those that are at risk. And when I heard that our church was meeting, I was going to mask up and show up. But this weekend is my wife's birthday, so we're going out of town. But I will be in attendance as an old, mostly dead guy, um, in in our you know in our <laughs> local church here. But it's it's because of my deeply held views, and I'll be with a mask, and I'll wash my hands, and I will not hug everybody, uh, which I normally love to do, or fist pump, or all that. But um, yeah, Nathan, I think. Some are seeing um, that. Some are not having children's church on purpose. And so they've shrunk the length of their church service so that kids can feel, um, you know, kids can be in there and it'll be quicker. Um, and others have taken rooms and said, this is for all the older people. And they put the older people back in a more safe room with more distancing and just old people can be in there. And so um, there's a lot of creative ways that pastors are engaging that. And some are discouraged when, when they see what came back, but some are encouraged. And um, some are seeing high numbers of people actually come back. So That's I think the average, hear. yeah, I think the average, Nathan, is 25% of your attending congregation is back. So you mentioned a stat a few minutes ago that someone, and it, I'm sure it's just an educated guess, but that 50% of people who were engaging in an online service are no longer watching. I've sort of had that gut feeling myself. Um, uh -huh. I'm certainly not a statistician, nor do I claim to have the uh, the information, nor do I claim to this to be a uh, prophetic insight. But I have had that gut feeling, you know, that when this first started, especially for churches like ours who weren't particularly active in the online space, that wasn't like a, a thing yeah. that we were actively doing prior to this. We'd really just started honestly, to dip our toe in the water about four months before, you know, in November of, of last year into this service streaming thing. But it seems like, it feels like it sort of went from, you know, the initial shock factor of we can't go to church, but oh, look, our church is bringing church to our living room. This is cool. You know, yeah. we can, we can do this to phase two. This is still kind of cool, but I hope this doesn't last much longer. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> to phase three of, I guess this is better than nothing. So I'm going to hang in there a little bit longer to now. I just sort of 
God help me, but I sort of imagine that on in the background, almost like a, you know, like Sunday afternoon golf or something like, you know, you're, you're doing what you're doing and it's on, but you're not really there. I just fear that that's the direction that attrition, it will just take us there. And so that, that's, that's the worry. And of course, if you're listening to the podcast today, we're glad that you're here and glad you're engaged. And my encouragement to you to, would be to stay engaged and to participate in those online services. But we're not unaware of the challenge that that presents for each and every person. So, Kevin, thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts and your insights on that. I guess I'd like to ask you to ask us one more question. My question to you is, right now, not just church leaders, but every individual Christian, every person that's just, and at the end of the day, it's all we are, right? That's all you Mm -hmm. are. That's all I am. Mm -hmm. We're just sons and daughters of the King of the universe. And there's no greater title. There's no greater accolade. There's no greater status that any of us could ever have. But, but it does, it does probe one important question. And that is this, as individual Christians, what is the most important thing that we should be doing in this season of life? Well, I think I mentioned earlier the parable of the sower and gratitude and thankfulness and praise. I think to to frame this season as a season, but to frame it in the eschatological framework of this world, in this life, we will have trouble. And this is just one of those moments of trouble. Secondly, trouble always tests faith. It always does. That's the point of trouble. I think Satan comes to attack to prove what is real and not real. And he can't destroy what is real. He can't destroy what is the kingdom. He can't destroy kingdom things in our soul. But it could certainly rock our world if if it's not built on kingdom foundations. And so I think to, to frame it As trouble comes, trouble always tests our faith. And then with the eschatological hope piece being, and someday Christ will return. He will return as judge. Death will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. Sickness will be no more. And that is my hope. My hope is not in earthly justice completely, because we all must engage in justice. We don't have an option. But if you put your hope in that, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Our hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our hope is in Christ's return when he comes to right the wrongs. I sow my life into, if I was a medical professional, eliminating disease, but disease is going to continue. But there's going to be a day that all disease will be eradicated. My hope is not that we're going to cure all ills. My hope is that Jesus will return someday and all ills will disappear. And so my hope is set in that day, on that day. And that is the backdrop of all things happening on this planet. And that's why I can bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. That's why I can wake up every day and say, this is the day, Jesus, that you made, this day. Satan doesn't make days. Jesus, this is the day that you've made, and I will rejoice, and I will be glad in it, because I see the backdrop to this painting. There's a massive backdrop to this painting, and that is this. Pain and sorrow and suffering are met head-on with 
the kingdom that is already here, but there's a not yet part of the kingdom that is to come. And all of that combined, the kingdom in me now is to engage the darkness, to engage the brokenness and spend my life engaging it. Hopeful, not not hopeful, encouraged, not discouraged, and not to do it alone, not to do it alone. There's no context in all of Scripture for individual Christianity. It is all communal. It is all a we thing. It is all an us thing. And I think that's the second part of this that is being tested. When Jesus turned to Peter and said, you're being sifted, I think that's a great word for us today. What I feel like is that COVID and moving to online and everything that is pressing on us is also in our history is to disassemble the assembly, to disintegrate the integration of the church, to to fight the we and move it to a me. All of that is pressing globally on the church right now, and community is being tested. And I do know that we've reoriented to, to online and stuff, and, and you know the jury's still out as to what part that that may play in community. But in, in this day and in this time, community is being tested, and the church is designed to be communal. There is an incarnational part. It's designed to be physical. There is a trinity part where there is a co-relationship that is together. And all of that is embedded in the very meaning and being of the church. The word assembly, when it says, do not neglect the assembly of yourself together, that word means all the pieces are on the board. You wouldn't call a chess piece assembled if all the pawns were not there. And so the idea to the That's Hebrews good. where that was laid was that, was that they had ceased to assemble. And because of that, there was a, a drifting away that was happening. And that assembly part is critical. And so I think that's my final thought on that is that, that, that the big takeaway from this is it's being tested. And we should do everything in our power to maintain community and to continue to walk together as local ecclesias. What a great thought. Thank you so much for sharing that. I heard you, you, you spoke to our team. Gosh, this must have been like five or six years ago. And one of the things that you said at that time is that many were, were talking about the church as being on the decline. And you said, I think it's on the define. And, um, and, and I've quoted you many times <laughs> because I, I, I just rang true for me. Sometimes I give you credit for it. And sometimes I don't, to be honest with you. Uh, if I think, <laughs> but, but to quote Pastor Kevin York, the church is not on the decline, it's on the define. And I think we're still experiencing that in a whole new way. But, but, but I love what you said about church and, and Christianity always being communal, because I, I think far too long we've sort of preached a gospel that is like, save me from hell so that I can go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And um, while that may be a truth <laughs> in the salvation experience, that's not actually the point. The point is yeah. to become a part of a family of God. 
and to be a part of an unshakable kingdom. And you don't get to do that with personal salvation. You're you're saved into something, not just from something. So anyway, I, I love everything that you said, and I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your insights and your thoughts. I know this will be very eye-opening for people and, and very interesting to hear. And we, we will, as a church and a people, commit to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Um, this is not an easy time for anybody, but it's harder for some than it is for others. And, yes. and we definitely know that to be true. So thank you for sharing their experiences, relaying some of their challenges, and giving us an opportunity to, to partner in prayer and solidarity with the advancement of the kingdom around the globe. Any final words, Kevin, before we end today's podcast? Just maybe this, that, you know, the word ecclesia, which is the, where we get the word church, was copted from the local uh, communities. So an ecclesia was actually when the, when the officials of the city would come and ask the public to come to a meeting, to an assembly. And, and so embedded in the idea is a politic, or not political, but a politic, meaning people under authority coming to assemble. And so the idea of ecclesia itself was a gathering. It was an official assembly, not an unofficial assembly. I think as we exit this podcast and we see that, that we are not, although this is a global pandemic, we are not all experiencing the same thing. There are some in some parts of the world that it's horror. I mean, they're, what they're going through is, is staggering. I think it's a time of testing. Not only our walks with Jesus, our faith is being tested, but community is being tested. And as we exit this conversation, the local politic or the local ecclesia or the local assembly is the most profound community of people on the planet. And although the kingdom of God is bigger than the local assembly, he always uses the local assembly to expand his kingdom. And so it is inextricably bound together with kingdom advancement. And so if there's ever a time in in church history, all throughout history, that the local gathered church is critical. I think it is now. So thank you, Nathan, for for these questions and for this opportunity. And all of you at Mosaic Church, you're a remarkable church. You're one of my favorite. Morgan and Carrie are very close friends, and, and your elders are world-class. I've had the fortune of spending time with them and guys like you, Nathan, your staff, your deacons. You are a very rare and remarkable church community. And I thank you for all that you do for the kingdom, for your testimony of being diverse, even though it's very difficult. You know, diversity is not presented in the New Testament as a problem. It's presented as a witness. And so you are a witness to the world. Man, thank you for all those very kind words of encouragement to us. We certainly appreciate it. And thank you, Pastor Kevin York, for being with us today on Tuesday's R for Talking. Man, God bless you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Tuesday's R for Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.